Hello everyone, this is your host Ramakrishna from Usha Investment Group LLC. Welcome back to Multifamily AP360, the show where we discuss 360 degrees views on mindset, passive and active multifamily investing. For those who are looking for tips, strategies, best and challenging experiences. Also, I request you to share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Today's our guest is Daniel Kruger from Invictus Capital. Welcome, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Sure. Thank you very much. Little bit about Dan. Uh, Dan is a full-time entrepreneur, investor, and coach who is passionate about helping others become financially free by investing in apartment buildings. Besides providing lucrative investment opportunities, his mission is to help educate investors in financial literacy so they can take control of their financial failure. Before beginning his full-time career in real estate investing, Dan spent five years in corporate finance, where he managed the operating expenses for multinational fortune funded companies. Since then, he has grown his real estate portfolio by more than 500 percentage annually. So with that, Dan, you want to add anything to your background? No, I don't think so. I think um, we've been doing the same thing since we started. So uh, it's basically a rinse and repeat business model, which we like. We like to keep it simple. And, uh, you know, we were pretty hyper-focused from day one on, on our strategy and we've been executing it consistently ever since. So it was a good, good summary of where I came from. Awesome. Awesome. So, so you have financial background. So, so why are you getting into real estate and multifamily space? Yeah. So I've been obsessed with all things investing uh, since I was very young, probably coming out of high school, you know, I'd see a movie like, like wall street, for example, and see these traders and that whole kind of investing trading type of thing really, really kind of ignited something in me. It got me really excited. And that was the impetus to go to uh, school and study finance. Uh, so I did that and uh, coming out of a um, kind of middle-class uh, household upbringing, um, it was really important that I got a good education and got a good job with benefits. And so that kind of led me onto the, uh, the corporate route after going to school. And it took me about five years to realize that I was actually a heck of a lot more entrepreneurial than I thought I was. I thought I liked the idea of a quote unquote safe salary. And then I realized that um, I really wanted something that that the the outputs were more correlated to my inputs. Meaning if I work twice as hard, I'd like there to be an opportunity to do twice as well, which isn't really the case in corporate finance. You know, you can work your butt off, but you're not going to make twice as much money if you work twice as hard, at least in the industry I was in. So Started really, uh, you know, really getting into more entrepreneurial things while I was in the corporate world. Started a side business, uh, which was a consulting business, which did well, ran that parallel to the corporate job for a long time and realized that that was really exciting. The the side gig, the side hustle was, was, was fun, but wasn't scalable, wasn't related to real estate at all. Um, but I knew that I needed to be doing something, something different. And it was kind of while I was going down that rabbit hole into that, uh, entrepreneurial sales, self-improvement, uh, all those types of topics that I started to stumble onto some uh, real estate investing topics. And I just got hooked the more I learned about it, specifically in the larger multifamily space. Um, everything about it just made so much sense. And it was so simple fundamentally that I got hooked and uh, started shopping for for properties soon thereafter. And as soon as I closed that first deal, that plus the side hustle I had going was enough uh, to give me confidence to, to cut the cord there and move on to uh, just being self-employed. 
And that was kind of the start of it. Awesome. And thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And also you and your partner, Anthony, uh, wrote a book on passive investing made easy. So would you share a little bit more about that book? Yeah. Yeah. So the book, uh, Passive Investing Made Simple, uh, I think the, the the title kind of sums it up. Uh, we basically just want to demystify uh, the concept of investing in real estate for people and uh, make sure that everybody knows that it is possible to be a passive investor in real estate. A lot of people think that if they want to invest in real estate, that they should go out and uh, find a house uh, to buy and do it themselves and manage it, uh, or maybe even like a duplex or a triplex. Or if they want to be 100% passive, then I think a lot of people think the only other option is a REIT, which is a real estate investment trust, publicly traded financial product that you can find all over Wall Street. But it's not really real estate. It's uh, it's more so like equity in a company that that owns real estate, but you don't really get the benefits of the depreciation, all the cash flow. You get a dividend, but it's not quite as as uh, substantial as actually owning property. Um, but a lot of people don't realize that they can actually passively invest in real estate directly in the real estate, not going through a REIT and not going out and buying a property themselves. So the goal of that book is to effectively make everybody aware that hey, this is a tool you have in your toolbox outside of the mutual funds and outside of the REITs and outside of buying a property yourself, you could be 100% passive in this. And the book is how to do that. It's the one-on-one guide for, for passive investors on how to passively invest in real estate. Got it, got it. And, and you have financial background. And so how exactly are you using that financial background into multi-family space? Yeah, I get to use a lot. I get to scratch that itch uh, thoroughly because... Uh, there's a lot that I can apply my my analytical skills to my uh, my obsession with spreadsheets. I get to live in spreadsheets all day long, but uh, primarily on the uh, the acquisition side. While we're out there looking for deals, I'm the guy who kind of owns the process of doing the underwriting, building the models, stress testing things, and figuring out if you know the hundred plus deals that come across our desk on a you know any given period of time. You know, out of all those things, how many of these are actually uh, good deals? Meaning they've got significant upside and limited downside because we want asymmetric risk reward opportunities. We want to have a bunch of upside with as little downside as possible. And only I'd say one in a hundred deals actually uh, hit those hurdles. And uh, so I get to spend a lot of time doing the initial underwriting on these deals. And then when we actually uh, move into the, the phase of acquiring something and closing on it and taking ownership, um, I'm overseeing the the operating expenses and the reporting to investors. So uh, a lot of that is directly applicable to what I did in the corporate world, except instead of managing the operating expenses for Thomson Reuters and some of their business units, um, now I'm doing it for the properties we own. But effectively, very similar process. And it's a lot more engaging and fun when it's um, your own thing that you're running. So, And what is your acquisition criteria? And like normally per month, how many deals you, you guys are underwriting? Like, how many LYs are submitting? So how many offers? No, no. So we we syndicate our deals, meaning we have uh, passive investors who come into the deals as limited partners. And so one of the biggest criteria that we're looking for is that we want uh, to be able to show our investors distributions uh, that first quarter after we take over a property. So number one, property that we're taking over needs to be cash flow pro- positive from day one. Uh, number two, uh, we need to be able to deliver at least a 15% internal rate of return to our investors, given some fairly pessimistic 
fantastic underwriting. So rising cap rates, high vacancy, no cash out refinance. If we plug in a bunch of pessimistic variables, we want to have our, our downside scenario be at least 15% return. So like I said before, kind of a high hurdle in this market. Uh, about one in 100 deals might might hit that. But we've uh, we've developed some really strong relationships in our local market where we both live and, and operate our assets. And uh, we're able to get a lot of things off market these days through some very good relationships. So um, that's really how we're able to get things to pencil in such a hot market. Got it, got it. Uh, and uh, and also you're focusing on you know, reducing expenses. So what what are other things you will look you know when you're uh, when when you try to reduce expenses? What what's your criteria? The main thing that we can do is is leverage our in-house property management team. A lot of people out there will outsource that to a third party. A few reasons we like to keep that in-house. Number one, it gives us a heck of a lot more control over the uh, the resident experience uh, because they're the, the customer and. Just like Amazon, we like to really put that customer first and and have that be our our core philosophy for for how we do our business. Um, It's not about how much money we can make. It's about taking care of that that end user of the thing. In this case, the thing is an apartment building or or a unit that someone's renting from us. We want their experience to be as as good as possible because if it is, they're going to take care of the building. And then if that building is running well, the investors will be taken care of. So so we really focus on on trying to keep as much in-house as possible so we can make sure that they receive a premium experience. And that also keeps the cost down because um, if we don't need to make a profit on our management company because we just manage our own assets, then that means we can charge ourselves a heck of a lot less than a third party management company could. Uh, another thing that we do is leverage our economies of scale and uh, we're, we're focusing on very small geographic area. So adding an asset into our portfolio means that we can leverage all the resources around it from the other assets in the area that we own and our cost of operations will go down. Um, And this is by being efficient with our vendors, really keeping them honest and being able to throw on a new property to an existing good vendor relationship so that, you know, lawn care, cleaning, boiler services, uh, all that stuff can start to cost a lot less when you've got some nice preferred vendors with that you have good relationships with, and you get these, uh, you start to get some volume pricing discounts as you get larger. So really being efficient with our vendors, keeping things in house. Uh, those are some of the best ways to keep the expenses down. Got it. Yep. Thank you. Definitely. You know, in how property management will give you uh, control and uh, and also you know so you can you can do whatever you want so other thing is like you know how exactly you build in-house property management team property management group so definitely it's a you might have some best experiences and also challenging experience it's a lot of work um it's a lot it really it slows you down uh so if you want to scale as quickly as possible in this business Outsourcing to a third party is is probably going to be the best way to do it uh, because we need to go out and hire people at the same pace that we're acquiring buildings. And, you know, for the last couple of years, the job market has been really, really good if you're an employee looking for a job. Uh, If you are a company needing to hire talented people, it's been a really bad job market. There's just not enough people out there to, to do the work. So, um, that's one thing I'd, I'd say to people that, you know, having a vertically integrated company and taking control over that resident experience, that all sounds great, but actually executing that is it's a lot of work and it will make your growth a little bit slower than if you were to outsource that. With that said, um, it's something you could definitely do. And I think it makes a heck of a lot of sense long-term if you can make it through that first period of uh, growing only as fast as you can hire talented people. The big thing that I think I learned while putting this company together was that you really need 
need to focus on your core values and your culture. And that was an easy thing to, to not put enough attention on early on for me because the property management company I was creating was just to manage our assets. So we didn't really have this, you know, we didn't really have to market to owners that we wanted to manage for. And so a lot of these things didn't seem quite as important early on because it was just a management company for the purpose of managing our own stuff. But um, that's how you get good people to come in and that's how you get them to stay. Um, if you just have a company that has no culture, then it, you know, it doesn't matter. Like good people might show up briefly, but they're not going to be there long and they probably won't they probably won't even come on board if you don't have something to draw them in. So really getting clear about what's the growth of this property management company look like and how does that translate into each role that we're trying to hire for? And what does that career trajectory look like for these people? Because people need to have, um, you know, some, some sort of you know, future to look out to and say, okay, here's where I'm starting and here's where I can be. And then you've got to have a good culture that uh, makes it a, an enjoyable and uh, enjoyable place to work and, and have people doing work that, that serves them and have them feel like they're, they're helping you build the thing as opposed to just working for you. So really focusing on, on the culture early on, I think is something that is easily missed by a lot of entrepreneurs. And it's something that you definitely can't, uh, can't skimp on if you really want to have the best people on your team. Got it. Yeah. Thank you. So are you, are you guys managing third-party properties also? No, no, we don't do that. Um, there's just not really much uh, much margin in property management. Not saying it's not a profitable business, but for all of the uh, the work that goes into it, um, you know, the ROI just doesn't really make sense to take on a third party customer. There's a little bit of a conflict of interest as well uh, when you start to have your own portfolio and manage for other people. Um, so we just kind of want to avoid that. And I mean, property management is where all the headaches come from in real estate. I mean, that's that's where all the stress is. That's where all the problems are. And so if we wanted to take on a third-party client, we'd be making very little money, but uh, taking on all of their problems and headaches, those would become our problems and headaches. And really the value to having a management company is just to keep our costs down so that the value of our assets are as, are as high as possible. And uh, if we're managing a property for somebody else, we don't really get that key benefit. So it doesn't really make a ton of sense for us to do it at this time. Got it. Got it. Yeah. What kind of deals you're focusing next 12 to 18 months? Yeah. So we uh, historically have been uh, focusing on the urban markets of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And something that shifted over the past year, I'd say, is it's tough to pinpoint exactly when we started uh, wanting to expand our radius a little bit. But Sometime in the last 12 to 18 months or so, it became increasingly more important for us to expand our search radius from urban Minneapolis and St. Paul markets to the first tier suburbs. That's for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, in our area, uh, the, the types of properties that were built in the urban markets uh, were primarily built either turn of the century, there's a lot of historic brownstones, or they were built mid-century in the 60s or 70s. And during that period, they didn't build properties very large. And so historically, if we wanted to acquire, say, 50 to 100 units at one time, it would have to be a collection of a few buildings. And they're older. Now, they're great properties. You know, those old brownstones, they last forever. But it's not the most efficient way to grow your portfolio. Uh, the most efficient way to do that would be to focus on larger properties. If you have the infrastructure and the operations, uh, you, you're, you're going to be better served going after a 100-unit building than a couple of 10s and 15s to get to that same 100-unit uh, uh, goal that you have. So going out to the first-year suburbs, we get a lot of stuff that was built from the 90s and early 2000s that's, you know, on the low end, 100 
100 up to 300, 400 units in a single complex. So we have newer assets and we have bigger assets. Um, so that's the main draw to going out to the first year suburbs. Um, and so that's that's probably the biggest thing that's shifted. And that's that's what we're focusing on a lot going into uh, the back half of this year. Got it. Yep. Thank you. And what's your take on current market situation? <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy market. Um, I got to say what uh, what's happening right now, just for context for the listeners, this is, uh, we're doing this in May of 2022. And I think we're watching something very unique happen from a macro level and a global level. And it's it's very interesting. We have uh, interest rates starting to rise. We have unemployment at all time lows. We have inflation. We just got numbers that came out today. It was like uh, year over year, uh, like 8.6%. Um, so we have this massive inflation that's showing up. Uh, we've got unemployment ridiculously low. Um, but there's still this huge supply demand imbalance between how many units there are, how many apartment units there are out there, and how many there actually need to be to satisfy the demand. So regardless of rising interest rates and you know this kind of you know, recession that everyone's uh, forecasting is going to happen because things have been so good for so long, uh, it's still a really great time to, to buy properties. Now, like I said before, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack, at least with things that are publicly marketed. But as long as you don't overpay and as long as you don't over leverage yourself and you've got a long enough time horizon, it's still a great time to buy things. You're just going to have to look at a lot more before you find something that works. So um, people just need to be aware that you know interest rates are going to be rising here for at least probably the next year or so. But we got really comfortable with interest rates in the three percent range, and so you know if if that's what you need for your deals to work, then those mean that means that those are are some pretty skinny deals. But uh, you can still do it. You just have to look a lot harder. So yes, things have been hot for a long time. But uh, if you buy something for less than its market value today, and you have the opportunity to add some value in some way, shape, or form, then I think you you still have a pretty good opportunity to make some money in a, a good asymmetric risk reward scenario. Got it. And anyone advice that you have received have impact on you? Yeah, I think what I'd, I'd say for this is it wasn't really advice that was given to me directly. But um, do you know, uh, have, you, have, you heard, excuse me, have you heard of somebody uh, named Naval Ravikant? Yeah, yes. Okay. Um, so are you familiar with his, his tweet storm that he put out years back? Yeah. Yeah. So for the listeners who aren't aware, there's this individual named Naval Ravikant, who's kind of a old school, uh, not old school, but He's 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 from the kind of Silicon Valley early stage investor crowd. Um, I think he probably made his money over the past 15, 20 years or so, but early investor in a lot of those big tech companies and has recently gotten into more angel investing. Well, not recently, he's always been doing that, but he's been a lot more outspoken about uh, angel investing. Uh, he founded uh, AngelList. And uh, these days he's gotten very philosophical and um, very wise, very smart. And if you hear him saying something, you should listen. But one of the things that I pulled out of his tweet storm, which I thought was fantastic and really, really does a good job of embodying my core philosophies as well as Anthony's, was play long-term games with long-term people. And I like this one so much, I want to get like a t-shirt with this on it. But that's basically saying, don't be focused on short-term transactional things, right? Don't worry about how much profit you're going to make today or tomorrow. Focus on forming key relationships with individuals that you want to transact with for a long period of time. If you do that, you're going to be set up pretty well. So don't be short-term focused. Don't try to make the quick buck. Focus on building long-term relationships with people that you want to transact with for the rest of your life. And uh, I'd say that's probably 
just a core philosophy that, that really means a lot to me. And I think a lot of people can take a lot from that if they if they if they know about it and they remember it and maybe put it on a post-it note, stick it on the wall. Um, keeps you from being too short-term focused. Yeah, got it. And did, did you watch uh, Naval Ravikant's I mean, podcast interview with Joe Rogan? Yeah, I saw his Joe Rogan episode. I think they did that a couple of years ago. It's, I mean, it's all good stuff. Every time he opens his mouth, it's gold. It's there's no fluff. It's just you know wisdom yeah. packaged yeah. up in a very digestible way. Awesome. Yeah. And any any books that impacted your life and what way? Um, well, I got to say, uh, um, Almanac of Naval Ravikant. I believe that's the title. And I have you heard of that? No, no, I think. Yeah, somebody uh, somebody turned all of his content into a book, which I think is a really nice way to consume it. Uh, there's a podcast version of his tweet storm, which is about three hours long, where he kind of unpacks all the tweets and talks about them in a little bit more detail. But uh, The Almanac and Naval Ravikant is a, a great book that people have to check out. I, for the life of me, I can't remember the, the name of the author that, that assembled it all. Um, I can definitely find out and, and send it to you. But it's a nice collection of all the Navalisms that um, that I like so much, You know, one of which was play long-term games with long-term people, um, all that kind of stuff. That it's, it's in a nice little digestible size, probably about 200 pages or so, but the amount of gold that's in that one little book is outstanding. And then not to be too much on the Naval train, the other one that I, we actually just did an episode on our podcast about uh, was uh, The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. That book's going to be uh, uh, really great for any kind of entrepreneur or self-employed individual. Um, really just kind of business wisdom from somebody who's who's uh, successfully created multiple very successful businesses. Got it. Yep. And how are you giving back to community, Dan? Yeah, so we do, um, we want to do a lot more. Uh, but a few things that we are doing is we've been trying to do a lot of speaking lately. And um, so we'll speak at obviously real estate events, meetups, stuff like that. But uh, lately we've been uh, doing a few speaking engagements at um University of St. Thomas, which is a lot of fun. Uh, that's school I went to. Um, so that's been fun to go back and be able to speak to the real estate club and, and add some value to some, you know, 20, 21, 22 year olds who are trying to figure out what they want to do with their life. Uh, that that's been fun. We also are starting a, a resident assistance fund kind of on the back of all the assistance that went out during COVID. Something we want to start small with just our portfolio for our residents is to start to aggregate some funds into a fund that's specifically to provide rental assistance to our residents. So if somebody falls on hard times, they have an issue, an unexpected expense, they can apply for some assistance from us and tap into those funds to maybe get up to a month's rent paid for. Uh, because a lot of people that, that that are struggling with being able to afford where they live, um, it's it's usually not an earth shattering number. It's usually if you know if, if somebody had like a break on their rent for like one month, that makes a world of difference to them. And so we want to start that small and and use it initially just for our portfolio. But long term, we want to expand that to make it available to residents outside of our portfolio as well. And effectively kind of start a, a, a charitable fund, but start small do it effectively just for our portfolio initially, and then take it bigger later. Um, basically just, it's all built on the philosophy that sometimes just like one month's rent payment, if, if somebody can get that taken care of, that could be the difference between being evicted and maybe being homeless. And if we could try to try to mitigate as much of that as possible, then um, that would make us feel really good and obviously help a lot of other people as, as well. And then the other, you know, I'd say kind of, uh, kind of, I don't want to say basic thing that we're doing, but just fundamental thing that's in line with our, our, our business model is we're improving all the properties that we acquire, which is 
hopefully going to improve all the neighborhoods that we're in and the lives of all those residents. So taking something that's been neglected by a, a landlord who didn't want to put money into it or or give the residents the time of day when it came to repairs, uh, if we're able to take those and, and operate them in a way that people are receiving better service than they've ever had, having more secure building than they've ever had, and uh, given enough time and enough acquisitions, actually improve the entire neighborhood, then uh, that's win-win, especially because this is our local market. I grew up here. These are my neighborhoods. So we care a lot about them. Awesome. Yeah. And how can listeners can connect with you, Dan? Yes. Yeah, so the social media platforms, you can look up uh, either Dan Kruger or Invictus Capital. Uh, you'll find us um, most readily available on LinkedIn, um, also Instagram and still on Facebook, but uh, mostly LinkedIn these days. People can also find our, our uh, video versions of our podcast on YouTube if they wanted to check us out there. But if they actually wanted to reach out to us, I would say LinkedIn or just uh, go to our website and clicking connect, uh, connect with us on the InvictusMultifamily.com. And then we also have Passive Investing Made Simple, the book. Uh, people can check that out on, on Amazon or they can go to the passiveinvestingbook.com, get a copy there. It's also available at Audible. And then we've got uh, Multifamily Investing Made Simple, which is uh, the podcast that we do. You can find that anywhere podcasts are, are found. So Multifamily Investing Made Simple is the uh, the podcast. Passive Investing Made Simple is the book. And then social media and InvictusMultifamily.com. Awesome. And thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. Yeah. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was great chatting with you too. Sure. Thanks for listening to Multifamily AP360. Check out the show notes and grab the freebie on our website, ushacapital.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Follow me on my social media. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time. Thank you.